Hey friends, this is Linda, and you're listening to Calling Water. Each week on our podcast, we look at a passage of scripture and ask ourselves two questions. What does it mean? And what does it call us to do? In today's episode, Let Us Start Rebuilding, we're looking at Nehemiah chapter 2 and what God has to say when our perceptions of value are inextricably linked to what we do instead of who we are. Let's get started. Occasionally, my mom and I get into arguments about money particularly her spending practices. The thing is, it's not that she's frivolous and buys herself designer handbags or shoes or anything like that. It's that she tends to give everything away. Often when she literally has nothing to give, she'll put herself in debt to help others. I frequently call her annoyingly selfless. But in response to my many, many diatribes, she once said to me, How many more years do I have left on this earth? Saving up is important, but I want to spend what I have on the things we need and the people who need it now while I can. And you know, that made me very sad. But then it also reminded me of this parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. In many ways, the man in this parable was doing the smart thing by today's standards, don't you think? He was basically setting up a savings account, and if he was frugal enough, he would have enough for him to live a comfortable life for many years. But this little bit of otherwise worldly wisdom, God calls foolish. And it's not because God is against wealth and savings, but in the end, these are just things used to acquire more things. Because this rich guy, while he may have had a solid plan for himself, that was it. It was for himself. He had no intention of using what he had in meaningful ways for God and for others. So with this in mind, I want to dig into another deep-seated emotion we are all confronted with. That is, I want to talk about value as we examine the life and ministry of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's story takes place years after the Israelites had been taken into exile and then released from exile. Many of them had returned to Jerusalem and had been living there for decades. Nehemiah himself was born in captivity, and at the time the book begins, he's working as a royal cupbearer to King Artaxerxes of Persia. In chapter 1, Nehemiah hears news of Jerusalem's ruined state, and even though he has never been, he is devastated to hear about what happened to his homeland. And I get it. As a second-generation Korean-American who has only been to South Korea twice in my lifetime, I'm still deeply affected by the goings-on in what I consider to be my parent country. 
Not as deeply as Nehemiah, though, who, upon learning that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire, as it says in verse 3, Nehemiah goes into mourning for days. He makes up his mind sometime during the season of fasting and prayer that he will be the one to go back to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. But in order to go to Jerusalem, he would need to be given express permission by the king. But even as he prays over how to bring this up, it's actually the king who gives him an opening in chapter 2, verse 2. Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. And Nehemiah sees his opportunity and responds right away. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So then the king asks Nehemiah what he wants, and Nehemiah does not hold back. He not only asks the king to send him to Jerusalem, he also asks for letters to various officials asking for safe passage and even materials needed for this building project. And you know what? The king grants all of these things. So clearly, Nehemiah was valued by the king, and he had garnered an absurd amount of favor from the king. So he goes to Jerusalem and inspects the walls and the work that needed to be done. And afterward, he tells the city officials in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. You see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And if you read on in Nehemiah, he does some more good work. As he rebuilds the walls, he has to deal with opposition so much so that half of his workers are building while the other half are, are guarding the project with weapons. And even when Nehemiah is appointed as a governor, he tries to distribute his wealth and he instructs the people to stop charging interest in efforts to help the poor. And then they do complete building the wall. And then he and his contemporary Ezra gather the people together to celebrate and listen from the Torah. And as time went on, the rebuilding of the walls did not bring about any lasting change in their way of life. Nehemiah was distraught when he learned that the people had been mismanaging the house of worship, had been setting up shop on the Sabbath, and were not treating each other the way God had instructed them through the laws of Moses. And in response to all these outstanding wrongdoings of the people, Nehemiah says repeatedly throughout this book, various iterations of what he says in chapter 5, verse 19. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. Remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. These are words of someone who is desperately seeking value. And he thought that by rebuilding these walls, Something would be restored. Something would just happen among the people, but it didn't. Now, like Nehemiah, many of us seek value by excelling in the things we do. For Nehemiah, the minute he heard the city walls were in need of repair, he was driven by that singular purpose to rebuild his beloved homeland. 
and all of his value and identity was tied into this project. But when the walls were built, did he feel fulfilled? No. And then it became about social reform. And once he rolled out those policies, did he feel fulfilled? No. Then it became about re-educating the people about the ways of God. And in all of those things, since his self-perceived value lied with the success of these endeavors, he continued to feel utterly unfulfilled. So what does Nehemiah's story call us to do? Now, we all want our lives to have meaning, right? We all want to feel like we have a purpose. We all want to feel valued. But when we're not getting it from the things we're chasing, then perhaps we're chasing the wrong things. As a matter of fact, our value, our infinite value, doesn't come from anything we do at all. It's already assigned to us just by nature of being. You see, both the rich man in Jesus' parable and Nehemiah sought after finding value in the things they bring to the table. But we're reminded today that God doesn't want the things we bring to the table. God wants us at the table. That means in God's eyes, you are already at the highest value possible because God made you and loves you. Nothing you say or do depreciates your value. You are valued, period. I mean, by all means, work hard and make all the money. We do need to make ends meet to survive. But know that your value is not in what you do for a living and how much you make doing it. And I know this is kind of a hard truth to accept because that's not how we've been groomed to operate. You know, society tells us that the more prosperous we are, the more followers we have, the more valuable we are, but not according to God. Okay, so our value is fixed. Then why should we even strive to do anything? Well, then the question becomes, how much do you value God? See, we're so fixated on our own value and finding our purpose that we so very often neglect to seek God's place in our journey of self-discovery. We meander aimlessly searching for fulfillment when ultimately it lies with God. You are already valued, but feeling valued comes from living for God. So let us start rebuilding a life filled with value and purpose. So step one, reassess your foundations. There's still time and space to adjust and make God that foundational piece. Maybe your foundations as of now were built on things like finding the right career, finding your soulmate, and doing what your parents told you to do. Or maybe you don't even know and your foundations are shaky because you haven't found your purpose just yet. But that doesn't matter because once God is your foundation, that means no matter where your job or personal life may take you, your purpose remains the same. Step two, set up your supports. As you go about defining and refining your purpose, you're going to need help. No one is truly self-made. Everyone has had some kind of support to a certain degree. So 
who are yours? Who are the people who inspire you and build you up? Set up camp next to these people and be open to learning and growing alongside them. And step three, keep building and rebuilding. I don't know if this is going to depress you or motivate you, but the work will never be done as long as we're on this earth. There's always more we can do, especially in service to God and others. Listen to the Apostle Paul's letter to his protege in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. You know, I hate to admit it, but my mom had a point all along. Because our treasure, our value, lies with God. And despite how you feel about it all, God loves you, knows you, has a plan for you, and values you. And speaking of treasure, I want to wrap up by sharing lyrics from a song written by my favorite Christian artist. Now, this song in the past hadn't really registered for me, but lately my kids have been listening to his songs on a loop because, well, I've inceptioned them very well. And this song is my four-year-old's absolute favorite. And I hope these words bring home the message I shared with you today. This is Treasure of You by Stephen Curtis Chapman. Excuse me, I couldn't help but notice that heartsick look in your eyes. You hide it very well, but I've got the same disguise. I know from all you see around you, you feel worth a very small price. So plain and ordinary, but there's a pearl inside. And if you look in the mirror in the light of the truth, you'll see there's really nothing you could say or do to make you worth more to the one who made you. You are a treasure worth more than anything under the sun or the moon. God's greatest treasure is the treasure of you. Let's pray. God, so many times we seek out our value in the form of what the world can give to us, but you tell us that we have value simply in being your creation. Help us to believe in our own value and live it out each day. Show us that we can rebuild in this broken world because of the confidence you give us and the reminder that we are infinitely valued in your eyes. Thank you for making us your treasure and may we never lose sight of the treasure of you. In Jesus' name, amen.